It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Watch what Jesus does now in this impossible situation. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, and I'm going to invite you, if you would, just to read the second portion of verse 7 with me. Let's read it together as a church. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Just read that one more time. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10 powerful right here. Jesus stood up and said to, said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Look at her response. And she said, no one, Lord. No one. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, your word is spectacular. It is powerful. It is living and active and moving today. We declare that you are God. There is no one like you. There is none above you or beside you. You rule and reign. Your son Jesus is how we have access to you, Father. He came to this world. He died. He rose again to conquer death and to forgive us our sins. When we follow after Jesus, we are filled with your spirit who illuminates scripture to us and helps us in our challenge of this world. And Father, we are your church. We are your ecclesia, the gathered ones who come to make much of Jesus Christ in his word. We lift him up so that he may draw all men to himself. We are your body. You are the head. We are the hands and feet of the body of Christ. Fill us today, move today, work today, save us today. In Jesus' name, we all said together with power, we all said, amen. Amen, amen. amen. Thank you, Dylan. Good morning, church. Good to see you all today. I'm going to be honest, we got a lot of work to do. Let's just get into it. Can we welcome our online family who's here with us today? Let's make them feel welcome. Good to have you today. Always a blessing. So chapter 8 is a continuation of chapter 7 in this Seek the Glory series. I'm excited about it, but i got to let you know, chapter 8 is a powerhouse, man. And it starts out with one of the most famous passages or interactions that we probably know about with Jesus. It's Jesus and this adulterous woman and uh, his, his, uh, his interaction with her. And there's really three, apart from Christ, there's three main characters. We have the adulterous woman. We have the Pharisees, and then we also have the scribes. Now, this is really interesting. Scribes aren't really mentioned interacting with Christ in the, in the New Testament that much, 
their predominant role was to write things down. They were the, the writers of the law. Not writing new law, but, but writing down the law from, man, from, from text to manuscript for people to have. The Pharisees, really the enforcers of the law. And then we have this woman who's caught in adultery. And, and this kind of sets the context a little bit. A little other couple quick things. Man, this is so good. I'm so excited about this. We've got to catch up in context. Um, this is really day nine if you will, okay? And what I mean by that is this. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacle, Feast of Booth, the Sukkot, had just ended on day eight. Remember we talked about that? Uh, so the day before, this massive festival took place. It ended. A million-plus Jewish people invaded. It's like the Woodstock for Jews, right? <laughs> they invaded Jerusalem, and, uh, and now we're left with the next day. So they've been camping out all week. Clearly something had taken place with this woman, another man, we're not exactly sure, uh, but very explicit in nature. And we see Jesus heading up into the mountain and coming back into town. Jesus had just the day before made bold claims. He said, I am the water. I am the water you want to drink of. And he says, anyone who thirsts, come to me, and out of you will come rivers of life, right? He says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures, of his, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living Water, Jesus, in an all-out declaration, is saying, I am God. Now keep in mind, the response of the Pharisees is they want him dead. Uh, that evening, there's a, a, some arresting officers that come back to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are like, did you bring Jesus? And they're like, no, we didn't bring Jesus. Did you hear what this guy's saying? It's crazy. It's amazing. And the Pharisees are very angry because they wanted Jesus. They wanted to bring him in, and they didn't get him. So what they did was they set up a situation in fact, if you're taking notes this morning, this is the first thing I want you to write down. Write this. Number one, it's a setup. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor right now and just say, it's a setup. It's exactly what it is. It's a setup. They said they might have even set up this woman, right? But we know that they were setting up Jesus. And, and I got to kind of give you a little bit of history here, a little bit of cultural understanding, a little context as we call it. They got Jesus in a situation that we would call today entrapment. Jesus was in trouble either way. And I mean by that by this. Woman caught in adultery, brought before Jesus. Okay, he's got two options. They're saying the law says that we need to stone her. And they're right. By law, they should have killed this woman. We're wrong in that fact. Like the law stated that you are not to commit adultery. That goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments, the foundation really of this Jewish law-based system, right? And so they're, they're hearkening back to that, and then a judgment by Moses made based off the Ten Commandments. You with me so far? Yes? Okay. The law stated that someone should be stoned, not only her, but also the man that she was involved with. They were to be stoned. And so they said to Jesus, okay, what do you say, Jesus? The law says we should stone her. Now, if Jesus breaks that and says, no, 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 let her go, he has broken the law of God. Get that? On the other side, if he says, yeah, you're right, go ahead and stone her, massive cultural implications. Here's what you got to know. Israel, the Jews, okay, they were living in their society, but you got to understand it was like a bubble within an overarching Roman bubble. So Rome was the controlling power, even over the Jews. Now, they allowed Jews to have some very cultural rules. They allowed them to make decisions and have festivals and, and judgments and whatnot. But capital punishment was not one of those things that Jews were allowed to execute on their own apart from Rome. Think about it this way. 
when the Jews arrested Jesus? Who did they have to take Jesus to in order to get him crucified? It wasn't the top-tier Jew. It was Pilate. It was the leader of Rome. He had to give the execution notice. Now, he did it on behalf of the Jewish people, but the Jews had to go through him to execute a judgment of death. Likewise, if Jesus would have at this point in time said, yes, go ahead and stone her, he would have been standing in defiance to the overall Roman culture and the law that was in the day. You guys with me so far? Yes? Okay. So Jesus is kind of in a conundrum. We find Jesus playing a little pickle here, okay? He's caught in the middle. If he doesn't want her executed, he's breaking the law. If he wants her executed, he's breaking Rome's law. And this is where we see the genius of Jesus. I love this so much. This is so good. Watch what he does. Look at this. He does this in verse 7, verse 6. They said this to test him. Clearly, it's a setup. They might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. They continued to ask him. And Jesus stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Big question, and it's usually the question uh, that kind of really is the foundation to a teaching like this, although it's not the, the deepest thing in this text. We often miss it because we... We go to this space. What was Jesus writing? We don't know. A lot of theologians would say what Jesus was writing the sins down of the people standing around. I would agree. That makes sense. I mean, just just textually here, we see the older men leaving, dropping the rocks and leaving first, and the younger men. We believe that most likely Jesus is writing down the secret sins of these men who want to kill this woman. Hey, if you have sin, if you don't have sin, throw a rock. Well, everybody's like, well, I got sin. Jesus is like, yeah, you do. Here they are. And he starts writing them down, right? By the way, I would have dropped that rock so fast. and be like, you know what? You do you. I'm out of here. You know what I mean? We all would have. I've heard this statement like secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. There is nothing secret to the eyes of God. Jesus, being God, understood that. Starts writing these things down. Now, don't miss this, because this is not the main understanding of this text. The main understanding of this text is not how Jesus told them, he who is without sin cast the first stone. We, we fall for that. We settle for that. But you have to understand, this is not the main thrust or understanding or teaching of this text. It's something much greater that we often miss. And it's something much more powerful that we often miss, okay? It's the fact that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but rather he came to fulfill it. We miss that in this text. But it is so beautifully seen here in this interaction. In fact, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus says this. He says, you know, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have come not to abolish, but rather to fulfill them. What law is Jesus speaking of? He's speaking of Old Testament law. Predominantly, he's even speaking about the Ten Commandments and and, and other laws that came. But understand the Ten Commandments were the foundation for the law that the Jewish nation functioned from. We We all in agreement with that? Yes? It's important now. My question for you is this, okay? Who wrote that law? Who was it that wrote the Ten Commandments? In fact, we know it was written twice. 
right? Because Moses gets the law from God, comes down, people are partying, like living like it's 1969, doing the stuff, you know what I'm talking about? Bronze, uh, they're dancing around. Moses comes down, he's got the Ten Commandments. Remember this story? He gets so mad, his brother Aaron was in charge. He's like, Aaron, what are you, what are you? And he takes the commandments, and what does he do? He throws them down and breaks them. He's like, I'm so mad at you. And then he's like, then he realizes what he's done. He's like, man, I got to go up the mountain again. And he goes back up the mountain. God writes these, these Ten Commandments down again. He brings them down, and he shares them. My question is, who wrote those commandments? Was it Moses? No. It was the hand of God. Here's the question. Who is the hand of God? The same hand of God is the one who interacted with Moses as the burning bush. Who was in the burning bush? Do you know who it was? The same who that we see interacting with Gideon. The same who that we see walking in the garden with Adam. The incarnation of God is Jesus Christ. Whose finger wrote the Ten Commandments? Jesus. Get this. The same finger that wrote the commandments is now the same finger writing in the sand. That finger, that hand, connected to God himself through the incarnation of Jesus. This is so good. This is so good. Can't abolish the law. He is the foundation of the law. You with me? You with me so far? Just look at me and say yes. Yes? Okay. The only thing the hand of God can do is fulfill the law. Notice what the fulfillment of the law does in executing judgment towards this woman. What does it do? What does it do? By the way, this woman's guilty. Like there's no, there's no if, ands, or buts. She's guilty. She's caught in the middle of whatever she's doing with this dude. She's guilty. And yet the fulfillment of the law is not to execute her, even though she is guilty and worthy of being executed. The judgment passed down to her is one of what? Look at what he says. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? He's talking about her, 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 uh, the people who were condemning her. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, and this is key, she says what? No one, what? Lord. Recognizing in that moment his positional authority and messiahship. No one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. She was guilty, and he forgave her. Forgiveness is the true understanding of the law of God. He didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to break the law. Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And the fulfillment of the law, don't miss this now, is having us understand what is at the basis of the law. Let me say it like this. Because I think as we read through this text, part of the problem is, is, is really our understanding of it. And so I want you to write this word down. First off, you're going to sound so smart when you go home, you know, and talk to your parents later today or some friends, okay? Here's the word. I want you to write down this phrase, hermeneutical integrity. Hermeneutical integrity. We're going to put it up here so you can spell it. Otherwise, I'd be up a creek, to be honest with you. 
Hermeneutics is how we interpret scripture, how we read, how we understand God's word. Okay, so your hermeneutical integrity in this text is key. And there's three main ways that we interpret Scripture. I want to go through these really quick, okay? Three main ways. We, 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 I made the first one up, uh, just so you understand, but it's just putting kind of some feet to, to this understanding of what we see today. Three main ways. Number one, there's narcissetics, right? There's the narcissetical understanding. There's narcissesis. Number two, there's eisegesis. And number three, there's exegetical. So narcissetical eisegetical or eisegesis, and exegetical or exegesis. Let's explain this real quick. Hermeneutics, the understanding of how we interpret Scripture. Narcissus means you are reading yourself into the text. In other words, the story of David and Goliath, of course, that's me. I'm David, right? That's a narcissetical reading of the text. Narcissus can lead you to some, some weird places, by the way. If you insert yourself into the text in a place where you're not supposed to be, it's going to give you, quote, promises that God will not fulfill. God's not the liar. You just read it wrong. You with me? Well, I'm standing on God's promises. No, you're not. You're standing on a bad reading and interpretation of Scripture that makes you the hero of the story. I love you. You're never the hero of any story in Scripture. You know who is the hero? Jesus. You are not David. Jesus is David. David is a representation, a shadow, right? A foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. So narcissus means I insert myself into the text, and the lens through which I interpret scripture is myself. Number two, eisegesis. Eisegesis, eisis means I'm reading into. So we're, we're reading something into the text. So eisegesis means I'm interpreting scripture through the lens of society and of culture. By the way, that's just a bad move all the time. Because the culture inside of here is different from the culture outside, from, different from the culture inside of roosters, different from the culture in China, different from the culture in Brazil. That means we're all going to have different interpretations all the time. It's a very Darwinian way to read Scripture, humanistic at its basis. Wrong. Don't do it. Eisegesis. But that's what we settle for. Lastly, and what I would say is the most biblically accurate, is exegesis. Understand Everything else is reading into the text. What exegesis does, exit, is pulling something out of the text. In other words, I interpret Scripture with Scripture. The greatest way to interpret Scripture is through Scripture. Okay? Now here's the problem. We have a very narcissetical understanding of this text. Because when we read this, we see ourselves as, let's be honest, Jesus. When we read this text, we're like, man, what a beautiful text. You know, at, at, maybe at best we see ourselves as the Pharisees that need to remember to drop our rocks and not cast them at bad people. You know, that's how we were all taught. That's how we're all, it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's wrong. You're not Jesus. In this story, you're not a Pharisee. Do you know who we are? Do you know who we are? We're the adulterous woman. In this text, the deeper teaching, the better understanding as that we, we each and every one of us, we are the adulterous woman. And you're like, I've never committed adultery. No, but you are found guilty. Without excuse. Each and every one of us. In fact, Scripture says this in Mark chapter 7. For from within, biggest words in this passage. For from within, read these next four words with me. Out of the Out of the heart of man. 
come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? Within. And they defile. That word defile there is the same word as to spoil. The author is referring to a piece of fruit that has gone rancid and is putrid and disgusting. The sin inside, the sin in your heart, in my heart, the evil, another word to use is depravity. The depravity inside of all of us, from within us, ruins us, spoils us, makes us rancid. Last night I had a late, late night uh, gas station run for my wife. I had to run down and grab some stuff for myself and her, right? And as I was there, I was behind some people who, to be honest with you, I don't know that they had showered for a while, okay? And the smell emanating off of them was such that I had to take a step back. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody that has not bathed in a while or maybe, I don't know, six or seven months, and so you have to take a step back. There is a smell about rancid. There is a smell from, 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 uh, you know, from a rotten uh, fruit, from a rotten, I don't know, decaying smell. There's a, there's, it's putrid. You know what I'm talking about, right? And this is how Scripture is defining our hearts. Elsewhere it says it's wicked. It's completely wicked. Point number two, you got to get this. We are depraved. We are depraved, and by that I mean this. We are unable to have affection for Jesus on our own. We are unable to save ourselves on our own. I know we don't like to hear this, but don't hate me. Hate on Jesus. Jesus says it in John chapter 6. We already read this in verse 44. He says, no one can come to God unless I, unless I draw him in. Nobody can come to God. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. This woman was guilty. This woman was depraved. This woman was deserving of death. Understand, you and I are this woman in this text. And hermeneutical understanding, hermeneutical uh, integrity through exegesis teaches us that you and I, each one of us, equally deserving of death. Are you with me so far? Yes? Each one of us, equally deserving of death. And so we have a great equity in how Jesus handles this interaction with this woman. Each one of us, we have great equity in how Jesus handles. And Jesus just forgives her. Jesus just lets her go. And this brings about... One of the greatest themes in Scripture that is often missed. And yet it is one of the greatest themes in all of Scripture. And it's a question. From Adam to David to Peter to Paul to you to me. Here's the question. How does God harmonize justice with mercy? How does he do it? How does a perfect God harmonize justice with mercy without compromising either? I mean, if God was just, this woman should have been executed. But if God was merciful, she should have gone free. And so we have to ask this question, is God just? Yes, indeed. 
God must be just in order for him to be God. But is God merciful? Yes, indeed. He must be merciful in order to be God. So how, the question is, how does God harmonize justice with mercy? I mean, let me give you an example. One day, each one of us will stand before God, and none of us will be able to stand before God and make the claim that we are good. Now, I love you, but you've got to understand you're not good. I'm not good. We just read Scripture telling us that inside of us, we are defiled. What comes out of us defiles us, spoils us. We smell, we're putrid, literally, before God. That, that, that's rancid, and that comes from within. Not culture, not society, not the world, but our, but our own heart. Evil the source of all wickedness. You guys with me? Yes? You still, you, that was a little bit softer, yes, but I'm just, are you still with me? Yes? Yes, okay. Nobody, no one's going to be able to stand before God and say, I was a good person. God would say, no, you weren't. I tried. That wasn't enough. You don't need to try. You needed to be perfect. And so what you got to understand is what our government doesn't give is mercy. What our social media platforms don't give is mercy. What a professor on an exam in college doesn't give is mercy. What a, what a boss in a quarterly review doesn't give is, is mercy. We tend not to give mercy to one another. Here's the good news. Our God gives mercy. And the way that God harmonizes justice and mercy is through the man, Christ Jesus. Do not miss this. This is the meaning of this passage. The way that God harmonizes justice and mercy is through the man, Christ Jesus. The way that God fulfills the law is through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to be honest with you. You and I, we need that mercy. I need that mercy. God help me, I need that mercy. I need that mercy continuously. We need mercy from God. And listen now, and then we need to take and share that mercy with others. We don't live in a merciful society. We live in a society that is destroying itself. We live in a society that doesn't know how to forgive one another. This world is sorely lacking in mercy. This is not a grace-based, but rather a law-based society. People are hurting, destroying, and not encouraging. Listen, I want you to understand this. If you want mercy, the place to find it is in the man, Jesus Christ. And in my opinion, Romans 5.8 is the greatest demonstration of this. In fact, Romans 5.8, it says this. It shows this harmonization of justice and mercy perfectly. Don't miss this. Watch this now. It says, but God shows his love. Other translations say, demonstrates his love. By the way, demonstration of love is the understanding of love. Love is not a feeling. Okay? I know I was 13 once. I understand what love feels like. But then you get married and you realize, man, love is not a feeling. The demonstration of love is the true understanding of love. Now, the action of love creates the byproduct of the feeling of love. But the action, the demonstration of love is what love is. So God purely loves us. How do we know? He demonstrated it. How did he demonstrate it? 
demonstrate it? Not demonstrated it. How does he demonstrate it? Look at what it says. He demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How did Jesus fulfill the law to this woman? He demonstrated his love and forgave her even though she was guilty. How does God demonstrate his love for us? He came and died for us even though we are guilty. How does he harmonize justice and mercy? He makes a way even though we are undeserving. Even though from inside my heart there is envy, there is covetousness, there is adultery, there's a liar, there's a sinner. God says, even apart from that, I'm going to make a way through my son, Jesus Christ. And you know what we're to do with that? We are. Secondarily, we should drop our stones. We should drop out of our hands these rocks for those that we withhold mercy from. How dare we withhold mercy? How dare we withhold mercy? How dare we withhold forgiveness for those who have wronged us? based on the forgiveness we've been demonstrated. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, for if you forgive others their, impre- their, their, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15, he says this, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We are to forgive as Christ forgave. Show mercy as Christ gave mercy. Are you deserving of it? No, not at all. You're guilty. So am I. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he stands in the gap for us, makes us holy before God. And I get it oftentimes we don't forgive others because we confuse forgiveness with trust. Can I just really just fast say this, just really quickly? Don't confuse forgiveness with trust. Like if you hurt my family, I'll forgive you, but I don't trust you. And that's okay. Forgiveness can be given in a moment. Trust takes years to build. You hear me? Don't withhold forgiveness, as Christ will not withhold forgiveness based on what you've done. Jesus Christ in this moment loves the sinner and hates the sin. And he hates the sin so much that he dies for the sinner to take the sin. You and I, we do the opposite. We love the sin and hate the sinner. There's a whole nother sermon altogether, but we do. We blast sinners on Facebook. We talk bad about sinners behind their back. And then we indulge in all types of sin. We love sin. We love it. It's not that we tolerate it. We laugh at it. We indulge in it. We play in it. We embrace it. Jesus hated that sin, but he loved the sinners. You and I are this woman. Don't misunderstand. Jesus is the one harmonizing justice and mercy. Let's let's just pray together. I want to give you a moment to reflect on this. Because for some of us, we haven't come to Jesus because we haven't thought that we were worthy of that mercy. We thought we had to make things right. We thought we had to get things straight. Listen, my friend, you don't make things straight to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and he makes things straight for you. 
You don't get all your ducks in a row and then come to Christ. Jesus is the one who gets all those ducks in a row. You don't clean yourself up to, to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and he cleans you up. He makes you new. You are a new creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He makes you brand new. He raises you from the grave. You can't do that to yourself. You can't do that for yourself. And he's not breaking the law to do it. He's fulfilling the law. Because at the basis of the law is a merciful God who sent his son to die for you. You want to get rid of that guilt? You want to get rid of that shame? You want to be washed? Then it's Jesus Christ. Your only option. With your eyes closed, your heads bowed. Would you pray with me today? Would you come to Jesus today? Scripture says today is the day of your salvation. And for some of you, I believe that it is. If you are willing to follow this Jesus, willing to pick up your cross and follow after him, willing to lay down your needs, your wants, your desires, your must-haves, and say, I'm going to give those over to you, God. I believe that Jesus was the Son of God sent to this earth, died for me, rose again, to forgive me of my sins and make a home in heaven, then today is your day. Pray with me today. Take those first steps in giving your life to Christ. Just in your own heart, just pray. Just, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died for me, that you rose again. I believe that you have the power to forgive me and save me. Save me. Take my sin, wash my heart. Make a new home for me in heaven. I give you my life. You will be my king and I will follow you. Save me. In Jesus' name. With your eyes closed, your heads bowed, no one looking around. Maybe you're here online. Maybe you're here in person. Maybe you're listening in years from now. It doesn't matter. If you prayed through that prayer and you meant those words, I'm going to ask you to do something bold. When I count to three, if you're online, would you just, and you prayed that prayer, would you just give us some hand emojis online? If you're here in person, when I count to three, I want you to lift up your hand with all boldness. So I prayed that prayer and I meant that. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. Be bold. You ready? One, I prayed that prayer. I meant it. I'm giving my life to Jesus today. I'm guilty in need of a Savior. You prayed that. You meant that. Raise your hand. Ready? One, two, three right now lift up your hand yes sir yes ma'am yes ma'am yes i see you in the back yeah god thank you for how you continue to work and move through your word through your church through your people thank you for being the harmonization of justice and mercy the realization of God's love for us found in the man Christ Jesus. We will be lost without you, damned without you. But because of you, Jesus, we're saved. We're forgiven. We're known. We're loved. It's in your name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray.